Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So Dave Jansen, why is today such a big day on the calendar? What's the big thing about today? Today's May 5th. He's right. Good job. That's good. Actually, the real reason is because, as we all know, today is the celebration of the 200 year of Canaan Township. Isn't that exciting? Dave, how did you not know that? I don't know. I was going to pick on Tim, but I figured I'd be afraid of what he would have suggested today was. Yeah. But um, 200 years. So Anne's family has been there 90% of that time, by the way. I've only been there 40% if that gives you any other help. So um, anyhow, uh, today, today is Sunday. And here's some things that you need to know about today. We have a very, very special guest here with us today. We don't always pinpoint people and, and embarrass them like this. But Lois Artrip is with us today. And if you haven't seen her already, I know you're going to want to do that. Yep, that's great. She deserves all kinds of applause. So now she is still residing at the Episodic Nursing Home, but she she broke out today. She ran and got away. It was so cool. And and the heart sort of saw her running down the road, so they picked her up and or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I got the wrong. There you go. Yeah, she was doing stunts. Good. Phyllis Cole is still at the Apostolic Nursing Home. Um, another good friend of ours, and we feel she's family, Joanne Widmer, is there for a couple weeks. And um, Laura Young had been there. She was at Orville Hospital. She was at the Apostolic Home for a day or two. Uh, she's been moved to hospice in Worcester. So i be praying for her. Uh, and I'm not real up on that, where she's at and why, but um, we'll catch up to her here. So... Just a lot of people to, to be praying for, and uh, and I know you do that. But ultimately, we are here to give God glory, aren't we? So let's continue to do that in worship. All right, if you want to stand with us again and turn in your hymnals to hymn number 66, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father, to Jesus the Son, and give Him the glory, great things He hath done. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes One moment from Jesus a pardon receives Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let 
the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father, to Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. You will remain standing for the reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20 this morning. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Let's pray this morning. Our kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come and worship you, to hear your word, Lord, as we open our hearts to you. Help us to have a deeper understanding of what you have done for us. Lord, help us to grow in our walk with you, our love for you. Lord, we also want to bring our request to you this morning. We pray for Gary and Linda McCannon as they work with uh, new missionaries and encourage them and help them. We pray that you would bless the ministry and that they would uh, continue to be able to reach many, many people. Lord, for Hazel Spiker, we pray for her health as she has the problem with cancer again. And some of the medicines are so expensive. Lord, be with her in a special way. Give her your peace and your comfort. Help her continue to grow in your in her faith. But we also ask that somehow the um, medicines wouldn't have to be so expensive. But we ask, also ask that your will that you give her healing. Father, also for Linda Young, who's in hospice, um, pray for her that she would not become discouraged. That she continue to grow in her faith and her trust in you. Give her comfort. Lord, those around her, I pray that our believers, that they would be able to comfort her also and we'd be mindful of that. But also for Joanne Widmer, who fell, we ask that you give her healing too in this time. But also for Phyllis Cole, uh, she's alone in a nursing home. Well, we just pray that you give her your comfort also this morning. Lord, when these difficult times come, even in our own lives, we want to be faithful. We know these people want to be faithful, and we just pray you encourage them and help them to be that way. Lord, thank you for your love for us, for how you provide for us each and every day, for this time that we have to worship you and to hear from your word. Again, as we open our hearts, you speak to us, Lord. We love you. 
series of unusual things happened that I'm pretty sure probably none of you have ever had to deal with. And that is um, accidental phone calls. Have you ever had one? Have you ever gotten a wrong number by mistake? I have a good history of this. Um, three decades ago, when my friend Joe was a pastor in Cleveland, I used to call him about once a month just to check on him, see how he was doing. And I also have this other thing where sometimes I reverse numbers. And so I would always, every time I got the wrong number, and it was another gentleman in Cleveland who worked a night shift, and I would always call at 9 in the morning, probably just minutes after he had gone to bed. And this went on for a long time, and we actually became pretty good friends. And when I told him that it's not going to happen anymore, Joe's moving to Pennsylvania, take a church there, he said, well, and call any time. <laughs> so... A year ago, about this time of year ago, I was uh, I called someone that I was about to go visit just to be sure they were home, and um, they didn't answer. They tried to call me back. You know how on your cell phone you just push the send button when you punch it up? Somehow they got a lady in um, what's the town Streetsboro in Streetsboro trying to call me. 
And she got this lady in Streetsboro. Some of the people in my prayer group know about this. This was a year ago. And, um, and the lady in Streetsboro said, well, who are you trying to call? She said, well, I'm trying to call my pastor who's going to come visit. She said, would your pastor pray for me? And she gave a reason why. So I called this lady. Are you ready for this? Her name is Mrs. Oshinsky and, uh, in Streetsboro. And we've had a wonderful relationship since then. She thinks that you in this church, that God listens to you. <laughs> she had a daughter that was dying of cancer, and then all of a sudden she's okay um, because people were praying. Some of, some of you are. I know not all of you. But she thinks this is like the greatest place on earth. So um, she's not far wrong, but anyhow. So this last week, um, Ann and I were about to go into a store, and I got a call from a 216 number. I had no idea who it was, so uh, I didn't answer it. And I listened to the voicemail. And the voicemail said, hey, you called my phone and did not leave a message, and I always call back to make sure you know that you called the wrong number. And I thought, who is this? I've never heard of this. And I didn't even call anybody. I didn't do anything. So I called this guy, and I said, hey, and he answered. And I said, hey, I'm like you. I, I call back when people do it because in case it's really an emergency. And, and um, I said, I just wanted you to know that I didn't try to call you, and I have no idea how. And he told me that he had two numbers come in at the same time, and one of them was mine. And, and that's what he punched and called back. So he says to me then, because he had listened to my voicemail, he says, so, where are you a pastor at? I said, oh, I'm in Ripman. And eventually he's like, what kind of church? Grace Brethren. And he's like, so where do you guys stand on the resurrection? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we love the resurrection. Yeah, Christ rose again. And he said, this was Monday, this past Monday. And he said, well, yesterday, and I knew this, he said, I'm Eastern Orthodox, and we celebrated the resurrection of Christ yesterday. I said, yeah, I knew that. And so we were talking a little bit about it, and then he preached about another 10 minutes about the resurrection of Christ, and he told me that in a, a group in his church, I don't know, there were three or four of them, and he asked them what the word repentance meant. And they came up with the idea of you know turning away from sin, um, the word confession, saying the same thing God says about sin. They came up with all that. But the slant he wanted to add to it, and I liked it, uh, his name is Mark, by the way. That's why I know it's Mark. And um, Mark said to them, you know, it's not just, repenting is not just turning away from bad stuff. He said, but it's adding a new life and a new hope. And it's like, it's not just dealing with negative. It's all this rich stuff that Christ gives you. I said, I like it. So, um, so I thought I'd tell you about it. So one of the things I've learned, this will not be a surprise to you, that I'm really good at wrong phone numbers. And I found that my best friends are people who don't know me. <laughs> and would say there's a reason for that. So, and many of you, they meant it, I'm sure. So we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we're looking at the practices of the church and today, things that uh, actually teach us uh, what we should be doing. Here's what Acts 2.42 actually says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So those practices are the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer, and fellowship. That's the order I'm going through them in this little mini-series that I'm doing. 
Last week, we talked about the apostles' teachings. When you compare the Old Testament with the New Testament, there's many basic things that are the same. Uh, the giver of salvation is always God. He's the only one who can give salvation. The way of salvation is always grace through faith to come to God like that. And the uh, people of salvation, those who are saved, are always the redeemed people of God. In the Old Testament, most of those God's people were from the stock of Israel. But in the New Testament, uh, God's people are from all kinds of groups. So we come to Acts chapter 2, the very first day of the church. And there were 120 that were gathered together when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they come out and, and Peter preaches a great sermon. And all of a sudden, 3,000 people get saved. And I'm just trying to picture in my mind, how does a group of 120 people process this? How do they think this through? What is going on? And how are we going to assimilate this group of people now that are way more than we are? This is a massive text, task. And it keeps adding daily to this. That's an amazing thing. Something that I was a little bit surprised of. You would think something as monumental as the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, the coming to host, and nobody took a selfie. I don't understand that. But last week we saw that there were um, people that were gathered together, all these people, the thousands of people, and they were attentive to the teaching of the apostles. They were soaking it up. It was a vital link to life for them. There was so much that was new to some of them. They had to now be, to decide and, and understand how Christ is that Messiah that was promised all along. And we thought it was over when he was crucified, but he's alive. And, and what does all this mean? And all of this, too, for them had great risk for them because it was not uh, what was popular in their day. And so if you're one of the apostles or one of that 120, you're trying to figure out how are we going to assimilate these people? How are we going to get them together in, within the church? And, and how are we going to minister to them? How are we going to meet needs? And how do we tell who is really with us or who's just on the bandwagon trying to enjoy these great things? And I think the answer there is in verse 42, and it has to do with the practices of the church. Some of us call them distinctives. But they were together picturing the common sharing of the life of Christ. That's what they wanted to do. They're following his instructions. I'm going to throw in um, what I call ordinances, and I'm going to say that they were being obedient to the ordinances of baptism and communion. And that's. And I know baptism wasn't on our four words there, but I think it's being included because in verse 37, we'll read that later, uh, it talks about baptism, that that's what they were doing. The Brethren Church over the years has had um, a real uh, list of, of what is an ordinance and, and what what qualifies. Here's something that Alva J. McLean, who is the leader founder of the Grace Brethren Slice, of the Brethren Church, said this, that an ordinance is something that had been instituted by the Son of God for a memorial to his disciples and thus commanded. That's what McLean said. 
it's something that Jesus said needed to be perpetuated, and it's something that has teaching affiliated with it. Um, today, in the Grace Brethren group, we say that there's basically two ordinances. Uh, there's baptism and there's communion. Those are the two that we make the big thumping over. But there was a time, uh, even in, in my early ministry, where there were more than two that were listed. And here's some of what they did. We talked about baptism, but the area of communion, they separated the three. So they said um, baptism was an ordinance, the bread and the cup's an ordinance, the love feast is an ordinance, and the washing of feet would be an ordinance as well. Um, but we also back then added the holy kiss was an ordinance, and um, confirmation or laying on of hands of somebody was an ordinance, and anointing the sick was considered an, an ordinance as well. You may know, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but once in my previous ministry when I was with a, um, a young uh, up-and-coming Baptist pastor uh, that he stopped in my office in, in the falls and he asked me about, where do you do baptism at? And so I pointed out our baptistry there was underneath the platform. And so I was telling him about it. And he said, I heard you do things different, baptism. I said, yeah, we, we try and immerse, and I'll explain later why. And then he questioned about, and I heard your communion. Yeah, we do a threefold communion. We do what Jesus did, you know, the night before he was executed, crucified. And then he was, like, really frustrated by that. And he said something about, you have a hang-up with the number three, don't you? And, and then he started to walk out, and I'll never forget, he was walking down the aisle, which the exit door was right outside the back aisle, and he was going down there. And I said, oh, by the way, we anoint the sick, too. And he stopped and looked at me, and I said, and I used three-in-one oil. And he just threw his hands up and walked out. I don't understand that. But anyhow, uh, that is true. That did happen. You know, God instituted these things for us to practice for a really good reason. He knew that we need reminders. Don't you do that? Have you ever forgotten something? You need to write yourself notes and keep track of things. We need reminders to remind us. Even the big stuff, even the really, really big stuff, sometimes we need reminders. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of times when God told Israel, now, I just did this for you. I've just blessed you. I've just given this great support to you. You need to build a memorial. You need to put an altar here. You need to do a pillar of stones or something like that. A physical reminder of your spiritual blessings. You need that so that every time you look at that, you know why. In the Passover observance, there's actually a portion of the Passover observance that still goes on today for Jewish people where a youngster in, in the family setting will say, why do we do these things? And then it gives the patriarch the opportunity to teach how God has blessed them and rescued them from, um, from their enslavement. All of these practices are to teach um, because we need to remember what God has done. So I would say an ordinance is something that is a physical symbol with a spiritual meaning behind it. It's a spirit, there's a spiritual reality to it. And one of the ones would be baptism. Now, I told you it is here in the Acts 2 text. And baptism teaches several things to us, but one's association. Association. Those first century Jews, when they started to come to Christ and they were getting saved 
and, and thousands of them were being baptized, that was publicly saying to everybody, I now believe that this Jesus whom you crucified, whom we all crucified, he's God. He is God. He is the Messiah. And I'm aligning with him. I'm going to associate myself with him and thereby associate himself with the church as well. That had to be quite a sight. You know, thousands of people all of a sudden getting baptized. Now, it was not unusual in the Jewish economy for them to baptize people. Those were proselytes who were becoming Jews. But this was pretty rare, a Jew becoming something else. And they, unless you think that the logistics would have been hard, there were dozens and dozens of pools and little bodies of water all around Temple and in Jerusalem where they could have easily split up the 120 and taken large groups of people and baptized them. That could have been done. But think of if, if you're one of the Jewish people who didn't convert, and all of a sudden hundreds and thousands of people are going through this, and you're wondering what in the world is going on? Who are these people? One of the few times when a church made a huge splash, literally, in, in the community. They were big. They were talked about. They were starting to get some uh, credence there. Today, if a Jewish person converts, and we often call them Messianic Jews who have come to Christ as Savior, and they get baptized, that is huge because it severs family relationships. It, it takes away what they have done um, spiritually, religiously, all in the past. They're saying, I'm putting that aside. I'm finding my reality in Christ. Yesterday, I was listening to the Voice of the Martyrs radio in the early in the morning. I turned it on in the middle, so I didn't catch everything. But they were talking about a young Muslim woman who lives in one of the uh, very persecuted countries and that she was insisting that since she's come to Christ, that she had to be baptized. Can you imagine the ramifications of that? Not just being ex, um, excommunicated from her faith and her family, but her life would literally be in danger as well. She was so committed to this Savior who loved her and died for her that she had to experience it. Baptism is association with Christ, and it severs all other associations. It also teaches what we believe. Uh, it teaches cleansing of sin. Uh, the water is not special, especially here. It's just written in water and nothing unique or holy about it, but it's a symbol of you, you know, how we were once in sin and now we're clean. A newness of life that we have. Uh, the resurrection is symbolized in it, you know, buried in death and raised in resurrection. And we believe that the triune God is taught through baptism. I heard someone use the illustration once that if a deaf mute was walking down the road, stumbling down the road, and came upon a body of water and there was a baptism going on, and he didn't know who they were or what was going on, and he saw this and he looked, and they dunked somebody, and, and then the next person, and they dunked him, and then they dunked him. That deaf mute would say, huh, that's a baptism. I wonder what kind. Is it a Christian baptism? Is it a Jewish baptism? Is it a Mormon baptism? Because all of them do that. But if that same deaf mute went walking in a road and came to a body of water, and there was a baptism going on, and he was dunked once, and he was dunked twice, and he was dunked three times, that deaf mute who couldn't hear uh, a thing would say, that has to be a Christian 
baptism because only Christians believe in the triune God. Well, baptism is something I think teaches. And so that's an accurate way, I think, of teaching what we believe about God. The breaking of bread. Uh, and here, that's all it says is breaking of bread. But that's representative of, of the communion service. Some people see that as meaning the bread and the cup, and some people see it as meaning more than that. By the way, nowhere in the book of Acts or in any of the letters, the epistles, is bread and cup mentioned together. Nowhere. It's not mentioned there. The only place you'll find the bread and the cup mentioned together are in the Gospels. And in the Gospels, it's clearly the night before Jesus was crucified. So it's in that thing that a lot of people paint the picture of the Last Supper. And uh, it's always couched in the love feast meal in Scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, um, it will use the phrase breaking of bread as representative of whatever it's trying to communicate. Or it might say just the love feast. There's lots of places, or a couple places, two or three places in the New Testament where it talks about the love feast and uses that. And historically, we know for the first couple hundred years, uh, the love feast was used, and we'll see that here too in a moment. It was practiced every day by the church for a while. They would worship and, and observe in the temple. They would share testimonies and teach while they were in the temple. But they also would every day meet in homes as new believers in Christ, followers of him. And that was so vital for them. Because in one sense, literally, their lives depended on it. There were people who were being persecuted. Some were being put to death. They had to be sincere. They had to know what this was. They wanted to know uh, what was going on. In the um, communion service, when it was practiced the way that Jesus did it, and the way he taught, particularly in John 13, uh, it teaches us several things. One is justification, salvation. The um, bread in the cup, the broken body of Christ, the spilt blood that he shed for our salvation. That's what it teaches. And I think everybody knows that and everybody agrees to that. We participate in foot washing, which speaks about the present sanctification. Remember in their day, you know, things were different than they are today. Uh, they would go home take their shower after work. Maybe they're going to go to another family's place to eat. And they put their sandals on, and they weren't cool like you are in California where you wear white socks with your sandals. They just had their sandals on. And then they would walk through the dusty streets, and, um, and they would accumulate dust and dirt on their feet. And um, that was symbolic of what it's like for you and I just walking in life. We know Christ is Savior. We got saved, and he's forgiven us of our sins. But as I walk around this sin-polluted world, my heart and my mind get dirty at times. And it may just be selfishness, or oh, as if that's just selfishness. Um, it could be something like that. But, but, you know, I need cleansing every day from the sin that I just practice, even inadvertently. And, uh, and that's what that symbolizes. And then the love feast, you know, which is a great thing. It talks about glorification because in Re Revelation chapter 19, it tells us that there's going to be a great um, supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we as believers are going to be gathered together and going to feast with, with Christ. There's going to be Philly cheesesteaks and soft pretzels and all kinds of great things there. 
and it's going to be wonderful. Today we do love feast, and, and I think it does picture that the unity of the body of Christ and love that we have, but it's even uh, pointing more toward the future when we will be in glory with Christ and able to enjoy fellowship and feasting together. Those early Christians, those Acts 2 Christians, would meet, they would share, they would learn from each other, they would worship, they would eat together. They often were in each other's homes, and that was probably because there was no place there that could handle 3,000 people. By the way, there's no place in Ripman that can handle 3,000 people. There just isn't. Every once in a while when you have a big concert, like when we bring King's Breast in, when they come every once in a while, it would be great to have a really big venue to put them in, but we don't have anything like that in Ripman. Uh, they would go to each other's homes, and that was their love feast. They would do that together, and I'm sure they would share the bread and the cup as a part of that too. And I don't know that they did it every single time, every single day, but we do have biblical reasons and also historic reasons to know that they did wash feet when they got together. They shared with each other. It wasn't compulsory. Uh, it was part of just brother love. It was totally voluntary. Some of that was temporary because we don't see that going on throughout all of early history, but uh, they would share and care for each other. I mentioned to you in, in verses uh, 37, 38, of Acts 2, it says this, when the people heard this, that's the message that Peter gave about the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We were guilty of crucifying Christ. We yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. How horrible a mistake that was. What do we do? What can we do now? Peter replied, Repent, that's all, get rid of all that bad stuff, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized. Baptism follows repentance. Baptism is the first sign of salvation. It's the first step of discipleship. And he's not implying that get baptized so you can be saved because you're not saved by any works. Even the work of baptism doesn't save anybody. If that did happen, if somebody got saved at their baptism, it was strictly coincidental. Uh, here, most people, we baptize people who have been saved and, and express that. It's an act of obedience. It's an association with Christ. Or in their day, they would have said association with the way, because the early Christians were called the way because... Christ said that he was the way and the truth and the life, and so they matched up with them. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, many of you know that, that passage. It's the most clear teaching on how to baptize somebody, and it's the only teaching by Jesus. And it's been the practice of the early church for several centuries. Baptism in that moment, in that day, meant something to the people. It, it was life-endangering to them. I'm afraid in our country today, it's way too casual for people. Um, I would think just a casual person would say, oh, yeah, I can get baptized. You know, I'll do that. That's fine. I'll join the church. Or they can say, I don't need to do that. Don't have to. There's no reason to do that. There's nothing. Um, I think God looks at it a little bit differently than how a lot of people in the United States look at it. So the early Christians, 
were identified and marked out by their obedience to Christ. That really was significant. And they were obedient unto baptism, which was a clear indication to everybody. And they participated in the breaking the bread with other fellow believers. It wasn't expected. It was assumed. <laughs> if you're saved, you're going to be baptized. If you're saved, you're going to participate in the breaking of bread and, and the worship of Christ and those things. If a church, us or any other church, begins to sacrifice those essentials, the teaching of the word, the breaking of the bread and baptism, praying and fellowship, if we begin to uh, sacrifice those for any reason, no matter how supported by the cultural experts are who say you shouldn't do that, uh, we would be abandoning the main reason the church exists. That's the reason we exist. There's those, those things. And you see in verse 42 that it says right away, they devoted themselves to this. One translation was they continually devoted themselves to it. It wasn't half-hearted. It wasn't haphazard. It was with great devotion and internal passion. Much like when those Greek people came walking up to the apostles and said, we must see Jesus. It's the same thing. We must see Jesus. Completely focus on him. I've at times tried to just picture what it like in that early day. What was it like to gather in a small house as followers of Jesus I'm sure they came together and they probably shared some stories. Uh, probably some of those stories were really tough. Maybe some of them opened up and shared that they have real fear about this new relationship. I'm in danger. What do I do? They probably, and they did, they enjoyed a meal together. They probably, um, after that, observed breaking of bread, the, maybe even the washing feet. I don't know if they did that every day, but they did sometimes. And they probably sang one of the hymns that they knew, perhaps from the Psalms. And then, uh, then as they embraced before they left each other, those embraces were really strong because they didn't know if they would still be here tomorrow to meet together again. All of that was so very, very real to them. And of course, Jesus was very, very real to them. Today, we need to be as committed as they were. Our lives are not threatened. I don't think any of us feel that way. I don't think any of us are threatened with death because of our faith in Christ. But our faith in Christ is threatened. Complacency in the Christian life can be as dangerous as martyrdom. And in some ways, even worse. Because at least martyrdom leaves a testimony that can live on. Here's what uh, Peter wrote. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. We've been set free, but we've been set free in order to become slaves to God. I would say if, if I could go across the country in the United States and talk to people who claim to be Christians, I might find that some of them feel that they experienced the first half of this. That, yeah, I feel like I'm set free from my sins. I feel I'm forgiven. But have you really become enslaved to God? Have you really entrusted yourself to him to live for him? Because if you did, that's going to result in holiness. And obviously it all results 
in eternal life. Complete that process. Give yourself to him. In chapter 2, verses 43 to 47, tells us what happened with those believers. It says, uh, Every one was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions, goods they gave to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Christ's plan and his prayer for the church is unity. It's not uniformity. It's not being unanimous. It's unity. One of uh, Martin Luther's right-hand man was Melanchthon. And here's a creed that he gave that a lot of people really love and, and follow. He would say, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And for those of you who are younger than me, which is probably a lot of you, the word charity means love. That's the King James word for love. So in all the essential things, the teachings of the doctrines of Scripture, we have to be unified in saying that is God's word. We stand firmly with it no matter what anybody else says. In the non-essential things, maybe um, you know what town you choose to live in or or how you dress, or, or you know, some of the non-essential kind of things. We need to give liberty to each other. People are different. There's different ways of expressing ourselves. But no matter what it is, whether it's something that's essential or something that's non-essential, we need charity. We need love, one for another. And that's vital to the life of the body of Christ. For those who were living in Acts 2, their faith was a day-to-day -day reality to them. It was very real. It was very important. They knew the risen Christ. They knew the power of his resurrection. They knew that the Holy Spirit was at work in them. We need to know those things as well. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the early examples of those who walked so bravely and closely with you who were bold enough to cling to the teaching of the apostles, to practice the practices that are distinct from the rest of the world and, and really separate us, no matter what they think of us, but to do the things that are obedient to Christ. And that they prayed, we'll talk about that next week, and in a fellowship with the body of Christ, how so significant and important all that is. Lord, give us a zeal in our hearts and lives, a passion for who you are, how to live obedient, holy lives, enslaved to you, and not to sin or anything in the world, but totally trusting, following you. We ask it through Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.